Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in Wiltshire, where it is below freezing. Hello, it's um, Richard Heller in south-east London, where it's bright and not yet freezing. And today we have not necessarily a great cricketer, but one of the greatest writers about cricket that the world has known, Richard. Well, I think that's a very fair summary. It's sort of appropriate that we're greeting the opening of a test series between India and England, because he's been a great observer and recorder of Indian cricket, and indeed of much else about India as well. Uh, He's the historian, as you say, of great distinction and many awards. It's a great pleasure to welcome Ramachandra Guha. Hello, Ram. Welcome on the podcast. Thank you, and good to be here. Ram, let's ask you as an Indian, your feelings on the Test match so far? Well, I'm glad that England won the toss, and I put up a good score, because I think too often in India, you have tracks that turn on the third and fourth day, and the Indian spinners are just too good for the opposition in those conditions. And somehow... I haven't done the statistics, but somehow Indian captains win an awful lot of tosses at home. <laughs> so it's good for the series as a whole that England has won the toss and Root and Sibley batted brilliantly to set up a really good test match. Well, that's um, a shrewd assessment. Also, I think a very sporting assessment, <laughs> not the least a partisan one. Ram, your latest book is called The Commonwealth of Cricket which is an accurate title because you do talk about a lot of Commonwealth cricketers as well as Indian ones, and you're very generous to them. But it's got a long subtitle with uppercase letters, which rather reminded me of uh, 18th century books. You call it a lifelong love affair with the most subtle and sophisticated game known to humankind, which is certainly true, but... um, Lately, it's not been such a happy love affair as it was in the beginning, was it? Yeah, uh, you're quite right, uh, Richard. The title was meant to evoke 18th or even 19th century titles, and indeed even some cricket titles. There's a book uh, written by a historian and amateur cricketer called Cecil Hedlam in, I think, 1903, and the title goes something like this. 10,000 miles through India and Burma, a journey playing cricket and hunting and shooting with Mr. K.J. Key's Oxford Authentic Store in the year of the Coronation Darbar. So, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've read that book, actually, Ram. It contains, it's fast, very, very important historical resource. Hedlum, in question, went on to be the secretary to the imperialist Milner, did he not? And it does have one rather, I think you tell of that, reveal that in your book, don't you, of your history of Indian cricket, where an Englishman sort of kicks an Indian off a train. Isn't that right? Yes, yes, yes. So I did want to evoke a long title, and I wanted to put in, of course, my love affair, which did turn slightly sad some years ago, but it's been restored to where it was before, now that I'm just a fan again. But I also wanted to tease lovers of other sports by putting in the most subtle and sophisticated game part. Have you had any pushback on that? Have you had any um, defenders of other sports saying, no, ours is the most subtle and sophisticated game known to humankind? I think uh, football and golf. I mean, I've had lovers of football and golf talk to me. And I can concede 
some things about football, but not about golf because it's too solitary. I mean, the lovely thing about cricket is like football. It's a genuine team sport mm. and the sort of solidarity and friendships and uh, uh, sort of sentiments that a team sport evokes are simply not available in golf or tennis or badminton. I mean, I haven't really talked to my American friends about what they think about baseball, which is really a incredibly crude form of cricket, which I can say to the two of you. I mean, I don't know whether your podcast goes, you know, across the Atlantic. So, yeah, it, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and Richard has done the research on the origins of baseball, which is mortifying news for our American cousins. Richard, didn't remind uh, Ram of the what you discovered. Well, it's not my discovery. It's just, it's really quite well known, but you, you always cause outrage to a baseball fan. Baseball is, baseball is rounders. It's an English game adapted into America. And the official narrative of the origins of baseball, which is immortalized in the Baseball Hall of Fame, that it was invented by an American Civil War general, Abner Doubleday, is entirely fake news. <laughs> and it was put out to um, assist the marketing of baseball equipment. You see, I would argue that this is evidence of the superiority of India over the United States. So the British exported cricket to the United States where it sort of died a death and it was replaced by a version of rounders where the United States went to surpass the world but only played itself. Whereas we India was wise enough to wake up to the fact that cricket was a beautifully sophisticated and complex game and went on to surpass the entire world and create the game anew in the 21st century. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, to sort of to evoke the American general who made up this, uh, invented this history, false history, about the American origins of baseball, there's a lovely Indian adaptation which is much more charming which comes from the sociologist Ashish Nandi, where he says, cricket is an Indian game accidentally invented in the West. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's a nice phrase. Just to be fair to the general, the general didn't invent the myth of baseball because he was long dead. The, myth of, the mythic origins of baseball were invented for commercial reasons by Mr. Spaulding, who was an ex-baseball player, founded a sports, sporting goods firm, and he had a lot of baseball equipment to sell. And he, he invented the myth of baseball as the American game uh, to sell his baseball equipment and displace cricket. Ram, your book, The Commonwealth of Cricket, is a personal survey of Indian cricket and indeed a lot of great world cricketers you've encountered. And what the really, to me, is a, starts as a glimpse of cricket in another world, Indian cricket in another world of the 60s and 70s which you look back on with great affection, and then you come forward into the present era, which you look on with a lot less affection. And in particular, I was really struck by the sort of, almost sort of collegial atmosphere of Indian cricket that you describe in the 60s and 70s. The, the way in which, you know, if you had any sort of connections with cricket at all, uh, as you did, you could meet, you know, the greats of Indian cricket absolutely casually. And I loved your description of meeting Gundapa Vishwanath, then Indian, India's number three, as a teenager on a motor scooter. You know, uh, those were indeed different times. Great cricketers were much more accessible. Often for them, they weren't playing the game full-time. G.R. Vishwanath worked in a bank, as a clerk in the bank, and he probably paid for his motor scooter from his bank 
Clark's salary rather from his test match fees, which was 100 rupees a day, which is a pound and a half a day, is what he was getting for playing for India and scoring 100 on his debut against Connolly and Mackenzie. But I was particularly fortunate, Richard, in that my maternal uncle, who, uh, Dore, who's really in many ways the hero of the early chapters of this book, mm. ran a very good first division club team in Bangalore, despite having effectively only one hand, and was greatly admired for his courage, his fortitude, his knowledge of the game, and his inspirational personality. And Vishwanath, though my uncle was a club cricketer, and as an India cricketer, Vishwanath was two or three levels ahead of him, above him, he admired my uncle Dore for what he had done with one hand, and was willing to shake hands, get off his motor scooter, and shake hands with his 11-year-old star-struck nephew. Mm -hmm. So also it says something, as I say in my book, Richard, about the times, an Indian cricketer in a motor scooter, without bouncers and bodyguards around him, on an ordinary street, being hailed by a passerby, stopping at get off, uh, getting off his, his vehicle uh, to shake hands. But it says something of the times, but it says even more about Vishwanath, because he's an extraordinary gentle and self-effacing and very genuine kind of human being. Mm. Clearly. It reminds me. A little bit. You know, if you read the early accounts of football, you know, Arsenal was the best team in the world, the best club team in the world in the 1930s. Well, you know, the fans would find themselves on the same bus as the players going to Highbury Football Ground on the way to, the, you know, as recently as then. It's And it's, the world has changed, hasn't it? Now it's these football fan stars completely appear to be so remote. Um, Rum, as I say, I pick up the sense from the early part of your book, a very vivid sense that in the 60s and 70s, Indian cricket really belonged to its fans and its supporters in a way that it, um, it doesn't now. Indian cricket is now, I mean, it has plenty of fans, of course, it's very successful, but um, it belongs, doesn't it, to a network. It's a network of very well-paid cricketers being supported by commercial political, media interests. Now, big question, is there any way in which Indian cricket can ever be restored to its, um, you know, the intimacy and the control of its, its fans? No, sadly not. And my experience is also special because much of my boyhood was spent in a small town in the Himalayan foothills. So even by cricketing terms, it was a backwater. You know, it was not Bangalore or Delhi or Mumbai. Of course, I visited Bangalore in the summers, as I described in my book, to uh, meet my grandparents, which is where I met Vishwanath. But you must also remember that this was a time when there was no television mm. in Indian homes. And I, my first acquaintance was through radio. And if there was a Ranji Trophy match in my hometown, 10,000 people would turn up. It's like, I mean, to, to go back to what Peter said about English football in the 1930s, it's like maybe... English county cricket in the 1950s or 60s. I mean, if um, the great uh, Len Hutton scored 100 in a test match and then came back to a small town in Yorkshire to play a county match, there'd be a large crowd waiting mm -hmm. to see him. And perhaps even addressing him in familiar terms as well-played Len, maybe waving to him, maybe him waving back. Of course, Hutton was, even by Yorkshire standards, a somewhat taciturn kind of fellow. But Compton would surely have waved. I mean, the Arsenal footballer and Middlesex cricketer would have felt a kind of kinship with the fans. He wouldn't have worried about, you know, will someone jump across the fence and mob me 
uh, will they ask me a rude question which my sponsor will be nervous about so that kind of intimacy i described possibly was even there in among county cricket test cricketers who played county cricket in england at least till the 1950s i suspect can i ask is there a metaphor is cricket a metaphor in a word for the indian nation since independence so what there was a kinship there was a gentleness about it and now it's become a slight a, a, a more frightening thing under mr modi I say I ask you this as a as an outsider who hasn't been to India for twenty five years. I think that would be stretching it somewhat too far, Peter. I mean, I think I'm always hesitant because, uh, as a historian, I know there are things much more serious and important in life than even the most subtle and sophisticated game known to humankind, which is after all only a game. So Indian society and politics has changed in many ways. Some, indeed, of which are uplifting. others much less so such as the rise of mr modi so i been thinking about uh, where cricket stands in indian life today not a metaphor but uh, maybe somewhat akin to what football was like in brazil in the 1960s and 70s mm. i mean we went to australia and we won a series uh, which is fine i mean teams win and lose series and we are a nation of a billion and a half people with the most developed cricketing infrastructure in the world so we did quite well in one of the series but the whole country went ballistic the finance minister in her annual budget to parliament started by saluting our cricketers the chief economic advisor says the economy first batted like pujara and now is going to bat like pant i mean opet opet's galore which is completely totally over the top and it's like brazil in the 1960s and 70s you have a harsh authoritarian regime the economy is not doing very well the world doesn't think that highly of you but you have the globe's greatest footballers mm-hmm. pele substitutes for all your failures and your uh, darker sides just as kohli and pujara and pant and ashwin do today so i mean i worry as a historian for whom cricket is a love a passion it's not what defines my moral or political outlook on life as someone from that background i worry if cricket is dragged too much into national greatness but of course that was true in the in the early years as well nehru made sure even though he wasn't particularly interested in cricket if you look at the early, early cricket as you bring out in your book if you look at the early cricket literature the you know the, the, the there is the all the various offices of state well represented that has ha- gone on from the beginning hasn't it yeah that's true. it has indira gandhi often as i say in an earlier book you know indira gandhi was an imperious prime minister unlike britain we are technically a union of states i mean our states like karnataka tamil nadu maharashtra are in an economic and political and constitutional sense much more powerful than your tiny counties indira gandhi would keep a chief minister of a state waiting for an appointment for months but if kapil dev's team won a world cup she'd have a photo op with them the next morning that's true and that's because they want to associate with cricketers somewhat to wash off their sins and that's why probably given the state of the indian economy today the finance minister had to begin a budget street speech <laughs> with the happy coincidence that we just won a test series in australia no if they lose this test series or if they lose this test match Will that make a difference to Indian politics? <laughs> Will that help I the opposition? So. I hope so. I hope so. 
The, um, has there, Rome, has there ever been, since Nehru, has there ever been an Indian politician who's dared to say he's, or she is not interested in cricket, never mind um, being hostile to it? Is any, is, have they all been at it? Have they all tried to wrap themselves up in cricket? Yes, and uh, interestingly, Mr. Modi belongs to the BJP uh, and the BJ, the Bharatiya Janta Party, which is a right-wing Hindu uh, first party. And the ideological counterpart of the BJP is an organization called the RSS. And the founders of the RSS through the 30s and the 40s and the 50s polemicized against cricket, said it's a foreign game, it uh, doesn't sit with the Indian ethos, and it should quit India when the British quit India, but of course they, it didn't. And the leaders of the RSS and the BJP quickly recognized the symbolic and propaganda value of closing up to our great cricketers, particularly when they played against Pakistan and beat Pakistan. Ah, be it. I want to jump on to the end of your book, Ram, which details a rather unhappy experience as an interim administrator of Indian cricket. Uh, you're appointed to this Indian committee, which I think was set up as a result of the Supreme Court dismissing the old Board of Control for um, corruption and conflicts of interest. Um, you were set up, and then it, arising from that, they were set up this interim committee, and um, you had a few unhappy months on it, as I read from your book. I'd loved, <laughs> couldn't help <laughs> relating to the story that um, as soon as you were appointed, all sorts of friends and ex-players, uh, ex-players that you played with, asked you for jobs or consultancies. And this was in a, you know, this was in a, you'd just been appointed to a clean-up committee, and straight away you were being asked for jobs and consultancies. Yes, it was. Because, you know, I, as I described in the early chapters of my book, I played cricket for school and college, and for a good college team, my college team had two test cricketers, so somewhat like, you know, say a Cambridge Blue who had played all, alongside Atherton or Brearley or whatever. But after that, I stopped playing cricket. You know, I had no playing connection with the game till I joined the board, and chaps I played with or against 35 or 40 years earlier rang me up out of the blue. You know, so it was rather odd, but, you know, uh, that's kind of life for you. You know, if unexpectedly, I'm sure, you know, when Richard became political editor of The Spectator, he may have got a few calls from old college friends saying, can I write an op-ed on the Tory party or can I review so-and-so's book? I mean, that's, that's, that's what happens probably all mm. over the world. When mm. you get a position of responsibility, there are all kinds of calls and claims made on you. But to, to sum up that um, very powerful chapter in the book, you're trying to fix a lot of, as, as I see it, a lot of deep-seated problems which have developed in Indian cricket, particularly problems of, um, well, you know, outright corruption, of, um, of patronage, of um, clientelism, and of, you know, player, ex-players, famous ex-players, and um, administrators with really obvious conflicts of interest. There are basic reforms to be done, but it seems to me you just you're just unable to get the support, not just on your committee, but even on the you know from important interests outside India. There just doesn't seem to be the political will to um, tackle these problems. Is that a fair summary? Yes, it is. It is. And um, the only prominent, as I read your book, the only prominent player or ex-player to support you publicly was Bishan Beatty or other 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 were there others who no, should be named? I mean, he, was a, he is a 
I mean, he is really an exceptional human being. After, apart from being a great cricketer, he's a person of great character, independence of mind, mind a spine, a backbone. But again, you know, if you look at the conflicts of interest that plagued international football and FIFA, and the questions raised about Michel Platini and uh, even Beckenbauer, so sometimes great achievement in the sporting field, or very rarely does great achievement in the sporting field match dignity, human dignity and behavior outside the sporting field. And, you know, great sportsmen are usually nasty people, particularly in our hyper-commercialized world. I mean, G.R. Vishwanath, the kind of G.R. Vishwanath-like figure, maybe they were uh, Arsenal uh, footballers in the 1930s who were chatty and friendly with fans, but maybe we are just being nostalgic. When there's so much at stake, so much money and power at stake, people are very reluctant to sacrifice any of it. So, Ram, can you explain in a broader sense or more more analytically the reasons for the lack of political will to address these problems of corruption and so forth in Indian cricket? So what happened specifically in this case was that the Supreme Court intervened. Now, of course, there were legal questions as to whether the Supreme Court should intervene because this is a private sport. It's the Supreme Court is supposed to be with constitutional matters relating to the public domain, but it intervened. It had a brave chief justice who wanted to do something to clean up Indian cricket. There were the match-fixing scandals. Fans were disgusted, and fans also thought that uh, the game should be better run. Meanwhile, the chief justice of the Supreme Court lost uh, was replaced by somebody else who had no interest in cleaning up Indian cricket. The IPL grew and grew. The fans got swayed by the fact that India was now the centre of world cricket. They were willing to forgive all the misconduct and the misdemeanours of those who ran the board. Indian Indians were winning matches and series abroad. Foreign cricketers were coming to play in India. Our kind of national ego, national cricketing ego had been satisfied by the fact that the centre of world cricket had shifted from Australia and before that England to India. So there was not just political will, you know, because political will is problematic. You need political will to clean up corruption in parliament or in the running of the military. Here, this was a private sport whose fans, even now, are absolutely willing to forgive all that happens behind the scenes so long as they get their fix and watch the IPL for six weeks in the year. Of course, one must salute the people who run Indian cricket because the IPL has become the premier league in the world uh, and it's a huge success. It, it, uh, India has created, it, it belongs to India, it's an Indian achievement. And so for all the things we're carping at here, which are very important, you've got to applaud the invention of a new form of cricket, and which is, which is so exciting. Nobody can deny that. Well, I, as you know, I'm not a fan of the IPL of T20, but I can see it's been incredibly popular. Uh, but I, you know, I see it really as a, what it has done is because it's so popular and it has distinguished British and Australian writers praising it, the Indian fan forgets that the person who started the IPL is a fugitive in London, Lalit Modi. Some, another person who was instrumental in the IPL, Vijay Malia, has not paid his employees and is parked in London. Uh-huh. The, the teams that own uh, are owned by some of the most shady corporate houses in the country. So, you know, I have deeply ambivalent feelings about the way the IPL is done. I mean, not least because 
I'm a biographer of Mahatma Gandhi, and I believe that the ends cannot justify the means. That's also part of where I where I come where I'm coming from. But I do recognize I'm in a distinct minority. Even my British friends, not just Peter Obon here today, but people I dearly love, like Francis Wien and so on, will get up, stay up, up, get up to watch the IPL. So I suppose you know. Uh, so, but essentially, cleaning up Indian cricket is a lost cause. Uh, just as cleaning up probably world football is a lost cause. Mm. I mean, how, how did Qatar get the World Cup, <laughs> and how did they get the votes to to host the World Cup? I mean, I mean, the IPL scandal is peanuts compared maybe to uh, uh, the, the story of FIFA and the International Olympic Association. Mm. So, Ram, some people listening won't be familiar with your career how do you sort of how, how did it, you you move from being in a brought up in a little village in the himalayas uh, to being a sort of eminent historian of cricket and many other things of course well i um, grew up in this small town dehradun and as a boy my ambition was to go to university and play cricket for the best college team in india which was that housed at st stephen's college a college set up in the 19th century by the Cambridge Brotherhood, an Anglican uh, group uh, that had come out. And we should produce several test cricketers, many Ranji Trophy cricketers, and the college for which my maternal uncle, who's the great hero of the early chapters, had played. And I had no idea what subject I would study. Someone, I come from a family of scientists. But I was told that if you do science, you have practicals in the afternoon. Uh, so you can't go for net practice. So I registered for a degree in economics and very early on found that I was spectacularly unsuited to that subject, but I carried on, did a bachelor's, did a master's, and somewhere along the way started reading up on history and sociology and shifted to do a doctorate in sociology uh, in Calcutta, whereupon one of my teachers at the Delhi School of Economics told a colleague, this is a Pareto optimum, good for Guha and better for economics. And he was dead right. You know, I was completely <laughs> illiterate in economics. And Sort of that drifted along, moved from sociology to history and began as a historian of the environment. Later on, moved to political history in Gandhi. And it was quite early in my career. I was on a year's teaching assignment in New Haven at Yale University in the, on the northeastern coast of America. I was home, homesick. I was missing cricket. And I started making up lists of all-time Ranji Trophy 11s. And that sowed the seeds for what became my first book on cricket. So my cricket, cricketing life has run, my life as a cricket fan, cricket player, cricket spectator, cricket writer has run parallel with my more humdrum life as a political and social historian. That, that first book was called Wickets in the East, wasn't it? It was I think, published in 1990, as far back as 1992. And it's a very uh, entertaining and also very thoughtful book and introduced, I'm sure, introduced a lot of people to... A lot of Indian cricketers who ought to be better known. As I say, that was 1992, and you've been sort of writing about um, cricket ever since. But your major work on cricket was a corner of a foreign field, wasn't it? In 2002, which is a, a great book and a terrific sort of panoramic survey of Indian cricket with um, many great individual stories within it. But my first question is, why on earth is it out of print? <laughs> It's, uh, well, that you, you'll have to ask the British publishers and the British audience. It's in print in India. Oh, it's also yeah. appeared in a Hindi edition, 
but somehow my agent could not get it reprinted in England. I mean, the Commonwealth of Cricket has come out, but probably it's a book of its time. You know, Richard, uh, that book was written in between 1995 and 2000, published in 2002, quite a lot before the IPL. And it's divided into four parts. And the four parts are called race, caste, religion, and nation. So four sociological categories through which the history of Indian cricket is told. Race, the British are foreign colonizers bringing in the game to India. Caste, the story of these four extraordinary cricketers from an untouchable background. Religion, mm -hmm. Hindu-Muslim conflict on the cricket field. And nation, post-independence, how cricket got incorporated into the political and institutional culture, independent India. Now, if I was to write it now, there will have to be a fifth part, which is called market. And as I explained, I'm totally incompetent to write about anything connected with the market. Right. So I think, uh, obviously, I'm sorry and slightly sad that the book is not available in England. In England. <laughs> it is in some respects out of date. It's a work of history that that has itself become an artifact of history because it doesn't deal with the extraordinary developments in Indian cricket for the last 20 years, particularly those outside the field. Tell me then about the... Uh... Uh, it was a wonderful book, and I drew on it a, a great deal in the book Richard and I wrote, Wounded Tiger, about uh, you know with on so much the pentangular in yes. in uh, in uh, Bombay, which where so many of these are the, the things you're talking about kind of coalesce. But who were your intellectual influences when you set about writing it? So you know, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I was trained in sociology, moved to history. I was as a historian greatly influenced by British historians. Which ones? E.P. Thompson in particular. Mm -hmm. That's class, isn't it? E.P. Thompson, of those categories you mentioned, it was class about above all which he wrote about, wasn't it? But he also wrote about people and individuals. He wasn't yes, a mechanical yes. Marxist, you know. Beautiful book, yeah. His prose had a fluency and an elegance yeah. you don't normally find in Marxist writings. You know, arguably, Eric Hobsbawm was a greater historian but a far more stodgy writer. Human mm. beings don't come alive in the ways they yeah. do in Thompson's writings. Are you saying, can I ask you this? Are you saying that your history of Indian cricket is is, a hist is, is comparable? I mean, you modelled it on the making of the English working class. What a fascinating no, no, idea. No, no. Because no. no, no, you, you do bring, within the context, you're saying, within the context of the making of the English working class, the, one of the glories of Thompson, isn't it? The way that... That the, the the artisans, the craftsmen, yes. the mechanics are all brought to life, and you you live with yes. them. Yes, so so so, so bringing to life ordinary people. I mean, the hero, my uh, of foreign field, is the left arm spin bowler Palwankar Balu, born in a Dalit household, the finest bowler in his team, but he can't have tea with his teammates because he's from a lower caste. The most brilliant thinker in his team, but can't become captain because he's an untouchable. You know, a book of Thompson that I liked even more than Making of the English Working Class is called Wigs and Hunters, <clears throat> which is about poachers versus uh, those who brutally implement the forest acts of the 18th century. <clears throat> so in that sense, you know, the battle of little people against authority, you know, uh, Indian cricketers against the Maharajas who ran the <clears throat> 
Balu, who was an authentic Indian hero, counterposed to Ranji, who essentially is made in the playing fields of England. So I'd say very broadly, it's not as if I read Thompson's works before writing my book. But one thing I did do, Peter, was to, for the two or three years in which I worked on a corner of foreign field, I did not return to Beyond the Boundary because I knew that book cannot be imitated, mm. cannot be cloned, can, I certainly can't be surpassed. And I wanted no, no trace of Beyond the Boundary in that book. There may be some trace of Beyond the Boundary in my new book, in my descriptions of... Yes, I can Bangalore. see that. Because the Beyond the Boundary, which is the great masterpiece written about cricket by C.L.R. James, is what it does do so wonderfully, and you do it in your book, is, is bring to life the characters who formed, his, formed him as a young man and the books which formed him. Uh, and somehow it turns that into a history, very personal history, but a very rich history of, of West, West Indian cricket and has all kinds of thoughts about empire and race. One of the things which it rather lacks from memory, of course, is the Asian factor in the West Indies. It's about black West Indians, essentially. And that means that the the rivalries and the huge tensions in parts across parts of the West Indies are rather neglected. That's true. And that's surprising because Trinidad had a large Indian population as well. I mean, Trinidad and Guyana are the two West Indian countries that have a large Indian population. You're absolutely right. I mean, um, almost all the characters in Beyond the Boundary are black or white or somewhere in between. They're no Asians. Well, that was echoed later on, wasn't it, when they started characterising West Indian cricketers in that film, Fire Over Babylon, and when they started characterising West Indian cricketers as African cricket or as reggae cricket, and the, the East Indian players were just, the East Indian heritage was completely it's, ignored. It's, a, it's a, a very rare point, rare point that, Richard, people very rarely make it, that Fire of Babylon is a very misleading film. It's a huge hole, a gaping hole in it. But to be fair to C.R.R. James, although West Indian cricketers of Asian origin do not figure in Beyond the Boundary, several years after that, he wrote a wonderful essay on Rohan Kanai, which is contained in his anthology Cricket, where he says, Kanai also belongs to the West Indies as much as Constantine or Headley or whatever else, or Sobers. I mean, so in a sense, like all of us, He's writing something, he sends it out in the world, and if he's self-aware, he recognizes there's an imperfection, and in later writings, maybe I can correct it, without saying I was wrong, but compensating for the lack of attention to Asian figures. In this lovely portrait of Rohan Kanai, I wish the makers of Fire in Babylon had read that essay that James wrote. <laughs> mm. And, yes. and I'm going to go and read that Kanai essay. Handsome, handsome amends, amends indeed. Um, Ram, you wrote, a, we haven't mentioned your two-volume, very authoritative two volumes on Gandhi. So much to talk about about Gandhi, but could you just enlighten us about Gandhi's attitude to cricket, which is much uh, discussed and uh, much misunderstood, isn't it? Yes, you know, um, Richard, Gandhi was a truly great leader, moral figure, with a wide range of interests, a wonderful prose stylist in English, for example, as well as in his native Gujarati, uh, with a great capacity for friendships. So very human, very human person. But he lacked an aesthetic side. The two great passions, popular passions of India, are the Hindi film and the game of cricket. 
and he had no interest in either. <laughs> he watched one film, a film in his life, and I think went to sleep halfway. <laughs> and he really, I mean, he patronized cricket teams in South Africa. When the Indians started their team, he would go and be like Nehru or Indira Gandhi or Modi later. He might, might be photographed with them. But what Gandhi did, which was a profound consequence to the game of cricket uh, in India, was that he delegitimized the practice of untouchability. And the cricketer I spoke about earlier, Palwankar mm -hmm. Balu, when Gandhi assumed the leadership of the national movement, Gandhi's political supporters demanded that justice be given to this untouchable cricket on the cricket field because Gandhi would have liked it. <laughs> when Hindus and Muslims started clashing on the cricket field, proponents of interfaith harmony said, this will displease Gandhi. So all of this, so even though he never watched cricket, played cricket, read about cricket, he had a profound influence on how the game was shaped in India. And to my great surprise, when I compiled the index of a column of foreign field, I found there were 40 index interests to Gandhi, even though he never watched mm. a cricket match or played. <laughs> mm. Yes, of course. Uh, and in, in particular, Gandhi's supporters just didn't like the, the communal cricket as it had developed in the sort of 20s onwards, in particular in, in, in India. If I may tell one Gandhi cricket story, which is actually true and very, very charming and typical of the man, the great Indian cricketer Vijay Merchant, the opening batsman who mm -hmm. toured England in 36 and 46, and in 46, in fact, topped the first-class averages, came from a family of Gandhi supporters and Gandhi funders. And Vijay Merchant's sister Lakshmi went to call on Gandhi, uh, her family's kind of preceptor and mentor, in 1934, shortly after Jardine's team had toured England, and she said, Gandhiji, I want your autograph. She opened, Gandhi said, give me your autograph book. He took it, uh, he took it in his hands, leafed the pages, found the page where Jardine's team had given the autograph. So it had Jardine, R-E-S-Y-A-T, uh, Stan Nichols, Headley Verity, XYZ, 17. And below the 17th member, he wrote 18 MK Gandhi. Yeah. <laughs> what is the meaning of that? That's just to say, I'm just an ordinary fellow. You love cricket. Your brother <laughs> plays cricket for England. So I'm going to be a cricketer for you today. Uh, let's, move on to, let's move on to Pakistan. Ram, you're generous, as I say, to uh, the whole Commonwealth of Cricket in um, your, your latest book. But I think you're particularly generous to, to Pakistan and its cricketers in the book. Do you see any prospect at all of um, bilateral relations between India and Pakistan being restored in cricket? Probably not under the Modi government, but can they, might they be restored under another government? Well, I say in my book, Richard, that I hope that when bilateral relations are restored, India and Pakistan compete for a trophy named after Sachin Tendulkar. And I give the reasons in my book why it should be Sachin Tendulkar and not Imran Khan or Kapil Dev or anyone else. And I think most Pakistanis will accept my arguments. But then I go on to say it's very unlikely that I'll see this series competed for in my lifetime, maybe in Tendulkar's, because Tendulkar is, you know, uh, 15 or 20 years younger than myself. You know, Pakistani cricketers had a profound influence on me as a young cricket lover. In 1971, uh, I was 13 
and I was hearing a test match on the radio played, I forget at which ground, I think it was the third test of the series, India, uh, England versus Pakistan. Pakistan needed 200 odd to win. Sadiq Mohammed got 91 and then narrowly lost. At that stage, India had not won a test match in England. Pakistan, of course, had uh, under Kardar's captaincy in 1954 when Fazal Mahmood got all those wickets. So one of the, my early cricketing memories was of an Asian batsman battling uh, to within a few runs of taking his team to victory. Then in 1977-78, the first test series I watched live on television was when India played Pakistan, in Pakistan. And the extraordinarily graceful batsmanship of Zahir Abbas, and of course the in-swing bowling of Imran Khan, has stayed, made a profound impression on me. So cricketing-wise, leave the politics aside, cricketing-wise, uh, I... Uh, you know, Pakistani cricketers, I was greatly impressed by. One of my favorites, Pakistani cricketers, was Wasim Raja, that elegant left-hander. And of course, uh, uh, Zahir Abbas, as I've said, the street fighter Javed Mianda, to my portrait in this book, and what all he gave the game. So I felt I had to have one chapter on Pakistan, one chapter <coughs> on all other foreign cricketers, West Indian, English, Australian, New Zealander all bunched up in one category and treat the Pakistanis separately. You say that uh, the India-Pakistan uh, contest should be named the Tendulkar Trophy. Why is that? It doesn't obviously make sense to me. Well, you have the Warrell Trophy played for between uh, Australia and the West Indies. Mm -hmm. You have um, uh, the Dolivera Trophy played for between South Africa and England. So the examples of trophies named after one person. You also have trophies named after two. Gavaskar Border, for example, right? Now, and I, in my book, I argue that Kapil Dev, Imran Khan won't really do. And Tendulkar was greatly admired in Pakistan too. And some of his greatest innings were played against Pakistan, sometimes in a losing cause. Remember the 100 in Chennai when India lost by 13 runs oh, very much. And, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. and the Chepa crowd gave Vaseem Akram's team a standing ovation. You know, I relate how young Pakistani cricketers in the 1999 World Cup flocked to Tendulkar at a reception in the Buckingham Palace because there was something about his batsmanship that was universal. Can I suggest another name because he embodies both traditions so much is, is Lala Amanath, who was brought up in in Lahore, learnt his cricket in Lahore. And I, when I was researching Wounded Tiger, I discovered, I went to the family which had brought him up and they had lots of stories about him and how they discovered him playing as a young boy in the streets and, and took him in. They, they adopted him and taught him formal cricket. Uh, and then, of course, he, he goes over and, and captains, the, goes to India, and then he's the captain of the first match against Kardar's team in uh, 1952. Uh, and he creates a completely a different identity once he's Indian. And I, he sort of embodied, there was something about Lala Amanaf and, and his great struggles in the 1930s playing for these deranged princes <laughs> when he tours England. And I, I find him magical. I would accept it. I would be quite happy with the Lala Amanar Trophy, but I suspect you'd find it hard to get a sponsor uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, he's again, memories of him are fading. Tendulkar is a much more charismatic figure. Tendulkar 
embraces the one day and T20 game as well. But personally, I'll be okay with Lala Mala. I, I give other alternatives. I, one alternative I give would be the Lata Mangeshkar Noor Jahan Trophy, named after two great singers who are lovers of cricket. And actually, oh, lovers of cricket, lovers of cricketers too. I mean, both <laughs> Lata Mangeshkar and Noor Jahan and lovers of cricketers. So there are endless possibilities. You can go, go, go. The, the one thing I would say, Ram, is whatever this, uh, we hope this series does take place, but we mustn't have a vote on its name given to the public. Otherwise, the public will turn up with a... <laughs> The winning name will be something damn stupid like Boaty Boatface. There'll be a joke name. So we must impose order on the, um, on the choice. Um, Ram, you've talked about the... Um, in your book, you talk about the literary influences on you, on your writing. Cardus, A.A. Thompson, to Australians, Jack Fingleton, Ray Robinson, all... Um, um, Fairly familiar to uh, to English listeners, but two less familiar ones, I think, would be Sujit Mukherjee and later, I'm not even sure I'm going to pronounce his name correctly, T.G. Vaidnathan, um, T.G.V. Tell us a little bit about them and what you took from them. So, Sujit Mukherjee and T.G. Vaidnathan were both professors of English literature. One grew up in Chennai, the other in Bihar and Patna. They were both much older than me. And they both played high-quality cricket. Sujit Mukherjee actually played Ranji Trophy for Bihar and wrote a charming book called An Autobiography of an Unknown Cricketer. Vaidyanathan helped ghostwrite Don Morez's biography of Sunil Gavaskar, published many, many years ago. And I think they were older Indians steeped in literature and cricket from whom I heard stories about cricketers of the past. You know, Sujit Mukherjee playing against CK Naitu for Bihar against Holkar in a Ranji Trophy match. TGV watching the first West Indies team to tour England in 48-49. And his description of Clive Walcott's state drive, you know, imprinted in my memory. So unlike my uncle Dore, who was my first cricketing mentor, these other two mentors had the kind of verbal capacity and historical understanding to tell me in greater detail and with more kind of in a more vivid way, about the cricketers of the past whom they'd seen. And I was fortunate to befriend them. It's not unusual for professors of English cricketer literature to be cricket writers. I think Ronald Mason, who wrote some wonderful books on English cricket, also taught English. Uh, the man, again, I, this time I'll be someone who's mispronouncing a name. The chap who wrote the wonderful book on the Bodyline series, A.L. Lee Quain. Lecain. Again, taught English in some public school, Eton or Winchester or something. So I think a love of literature and a love of cricket often goes together. And these two literature scholars who I befriended when I was young, who were each 20 odd years older than me. So as they had seen cricketers who I'd never seen, watch matches which would never be on YouTube and have them describe to me, which I think are deeply educative experience. Can I just ask one question? You brought up in Dehradun. What did Kipling mean to you? Well, Kipling, I never read Kipling, but someone who did mean a lot to me was P.G. Woodhouse. Ah. <laughs> so I read a great deal of P.G. Woodhouse as a young boy, not just his cricket stories. And it's still kind of comfort bedtime reading even today. 
Yeah. Richard is one of the world's experts well, on P.G. Woodhouse, I well, would that's, say. That's, uh, that's a bit of hype, but I love P.G. Woodhouse. Um, and I have the same feelings. It's absolute, it's, it's the comfort food of literature. Um, but one of our great regrets is that whereas the master wrote a great deal about cricket uh, as a, as a school, writer of schoolboy fiction, as a professional writer, as an adult, he virtually never touched cricket at all. Well, we think it's because he went to America and there was no market for it. But he named his most celebrated character after a cricketer, which tells you how much he loved the game. Certainly. Mm. Jeeves. Yep. Percy Jeeves, yep. <laughs> yes. Um, Rama, just picking up something you said a moment ago, there's a big sort of tradition of oral history in Indian cricket, isn't there? There's um, a great deal of um, uh, Indian cricket stories sort of passed on by word of mouth. Is anything being done to sort of capture this in an organised way, or does it depend on people just seeking out, you know, old cricketers and people with memories of, of cricket and, and, um, and capturing them? I'm afraid there's no concerted effort to capture them, and the tradition itself is dying out because of live television uh. Uh, and YouTube, where all the old clips are on YouTube. So you don't need someone to, older than you to recreate the scene for you. You know, uh, I, I talk in my book about the eight wickets that Mankar took in an innings when India beat England for the first time in 1952. The match was played in Madras. My uncle, a schoolboy, was hearing it live on radio in Dehradun and 20 years later was telling his nephew, myself, about it. So the way, you know, the kind of imagination is evoked in a way by oral memories that YouTube and television simply can't reproduce. So you're all spoon-fed. It's all spoon-feeding. So I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I did not watch a cricket match on television till I was 20. I think it made me a different kind of writer on cricket. Mm. Mm. That's a very, very interesting reflection. And um, <laughs> we're grateful that you didn't watch any cricket on television for that reason, Ram, because it's given, it's given all your books on cricket uh, a very special sort of personal touch. It's been a real joy talking to you, Ram. I hope perhaps we can do so again because uh, it's such a rich subject and we've hardly touched on it. So uh, we hope very much we might be able to uh, bring you back for a second innings at some time. Or we'll do it in Bangalore when the two of you come next. Oh, yes, please. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> yes, yes. We'd love to do it. Love to, love to do it there. But um, sadly for now, Ram, we must... Um, we must pull up stumps. Thank you very, very much for being with us. And um, on which note, uh, it's um, goodbye for me, Richard Heller, in a pretty sunny southeast London at the moment. It's still freezing in Wiltshire, and it's goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>